Welcome to Creative Adventures with Rosa Lewis. In this episode, I talk with my friend Aidan Lyon about psychedelics, the ineffable, user experience design, and how that could apply to spirituality. Enjoy! Hi, so I'm here with my friend Aidan and we're going to talk about a few different topics today, starting on psychedelics and maybe venturing into some different parts of ineffability and some other things. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So, hi, thanks for having me. So I'm a philosopher by training from Australia originally. My background was primarily in philosophy of science, philosophy of probability, decision making, philosophy of mathematics that sort of thing. So I was in a very kind of technical area of philosophy for a really long time. And then about eight years ago, I got interested in psychedelics and meditation and the scientific research that was being done on those topics and the philosophical issues that was that was arising out of that research, but also the, the philosophical issues that were arising out of the experiences that I was, ha- I was having with psychedelics and meditation. And at first it seemed like I uh, completely did a, like a radical left turn. I was on this kind of very conservative, highly technical aspect of philosophy. And then suddenly in psychedelics and meditation and learning about yoga and Buddhism and mystical experiences and all this sort of thing. But then it quickly turned out that they're about the same thing in many ways which was quite surprising. So now I think like a lot of my work is really centered around this kind of unifying thread of wisdom. Mm. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I've always been attracted to really understanding what wisdom is and really trying to cultivate it in my life. And so my interest in probability and decision theory and that sort of thing was a way of understanding how to make like better decisions and live a better life and kind of cultivating that kind of wisdom and the wisdom that comes along with a a scientific mindset uh, that really dominated my life for a long time and then what you might call like the other half of wisdom came along through psychedelics and meditation and there's a lot to unpack there is obviously but one simple way of seeing how that connects to wisdom is that uh, these interventions let's call them interventions if you consume a psychedelic it's an intervention if you meditate you're, in, you're intervening on yourself they seem to by and large result in better decision making Mm. for people right so by and large there are exceptions of course and we can talk about that if you want but the practice of meditation makes you more aware of what's going on in your mind and as a result you'll make better decisions you're more aware of the sorts of things that would drive your decision making normally in undesirable ways and so you have more freedom to make better decisions and i think psychedelics are doing something something similar as well that's just one aspect of wisdom i think there's, there's many layers there but that's one point of contact between the two so yeah it, it turns out that like I think I was just uh, naturally drawn to wisdom. That's where I'm at right now is working on like doing more of an integration between these two areas of, of my work. Yeah, that's super nice. It's a really nice description as well. I think wisdom can be something that's very hard to define and that just felt very like a very wise description of wisdom. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite simple, but yeah, lots, lots to it. Yeah, I like that. And so you've recently finished a book about Mm -hmm. psychedelics do you want to say a little bit about the journey of writing that or the experience or yeah so as as i mentioned about eight years ago i started basically experimenting with psychedelics and was having a lot of like really interesting and and nice experiences personally like they were helping me out in various ways making me feel better but at some point i noticed that 
I was doing my research or, or solving problems relating to my research. And, and sorry, as a side note, I should say that I have a company that applies my research in the form of software. So we help large organizations improve their decision making using machine learning and the psychology of judgment decision making. So I, I was having these unusual experiences with psychedelics and my mind was thinking about these topics. I have my research or the, or the problems we're dealing with in the company. The ideas were really good. Like they were kind of startlingly good. And it wasn't just that they seemed good in the moment, like I would write them down and in the next day they still seemed good. And then say it was an idea for a, uh, a piece of software, we would implement that and then we would give it to the customer and then they would agree that it was good. So it was, these ideas were being objectively verified as being really good ideas. And they would often solve lots of problems very all at once. We might have a stream of problems, like 20 different problems relating to like a particular thing that we're trying to build. And then one idea would just knock all those problems out. And just like a, as an insight. And so I got really, I got really interested in this because like a lot of my, a lot of my work is about thinking and helping people think. And then here I was doing this thing that people would normally associate with not high quality thinking, like taking psychedelic drugs. But I was clearly having high, like really high quality ideas that I think were either impossible or, or, or really difficult to have otherwise. Like mm -hmm. I, it just didn't seem like it was something that was going to happen without taking them. So I just got really interested in that. I was trying to figure out like what's going on, what are these substances doing to the mind that allows this kind of thinking to happen. And so I got into the, I got interested in the scientific research. So there's, there'd been some research at the time discussing like what happens to the brain under psychedelics and then some phenomenological and psychological analyses of it as well. So that got me really interested. Like, oh, this is something here. Like other people have recognized this as well. And of course, there's many, many anecdotal reports of people using psychedelics to enhance their creative problem solving. You know, the, the whole Silicon Valley thing is arguably, like a lot of people attribute that to the explosion of psychedelics in the 60s mm -hmm. in the Bay Area. So yeah, there's a lot of people who've had some like experiences. There's a lot of anecdotal reports and then there was some scientific evidence as well. So I was like, the skeptical part of me was like, ah, oh, there's something here. So then I was learning more about psychedelics. And then as I was having more of these experiences and learning more about the research, eventually I started having experiences of a completely different kind, which I guess the simplest way of describing them would be of a, like a mystical experience. That's obviously a tricky concept to unpack and say exactly what it is, but yeah. You know, so roughly speaking, it can involve things like experiences of non-duality, oneness. It's, it's like a radical change in your sense of self. Some people describe these experiences as um, yourself dissolving away so that you have this experience of no self. A lot of my experiences were more, I would say, characterized as an expansion of self. So it's kind of oneness with the world. And uh, I also, like, at some point, I remember one of these experiences, I had this idea that was just in my mind, just echoing really strongly, which it sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but it makes sense when you unpack it. I had this strong feeling that I was Buddha mm -hmm. <laughs> in, this, uh, in this experience. Yeah. And like, like right now, I don't think I'm Buddha. And I think what my mind was latched onto was this, this idea that you see in, in Buddhism, right? That there's this, we all have a kind of inner Buddha nature that can, that can come out and manifest. And uh, without knowing that stuff, uh, as far as I can tell, like I hadn't read any of that stuff at that point, but that idea was just very loud in my mind. So just having more experiences like this. And then at some point I realized this is a philosophical project. It, it isn't just like a psychological scientific project where it's like, okay, what do these substances do to the brain that are helping me think more creatively? It's like something radically different about these experiences that goes beyond the mere fact that you've altered your consciousness. It's something kind of deeply significant here. I had a strong feeling that the thing that was that had drawn me to philosophy originally was the same thing that was drawing me into these experiences. Mm-hmm. And so at some point I just had this idea, this insight that, ah, here's a, like a simple, but really important philosophical project. Just raise the question, what is psychedelic experience? Mm. 
what is this experience? And my, my goal originally was just to raise that question and kind of draw it to the attention of philosophers and say, look, there's this really important class of experiences that people are ha having and they're increasing in frequency with the psychedelic renaissance is clearly taking off. They're clearly going to be very relevant in the future, but they're basically receiving no attention from academic philosophers. So my goal was just to raise this question, show that it's an important question and then kind of be done with it. But then along the way, I started getting the idea of I, I, maybe I've got an answer to the question. And then that's what that's what led to the book. And we can, we can go through that in more detail, but I'll, I'll, I'll just pause it there. That's how I got kind of started with the book, that journey from personal experiences to realizing that uh, there's a philosophical project here. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think the raising things as a, as a question and it being an exploration is super nice and just, yeah, makes a total difference, doesn't it, compared to writing a book, which is like, oh, here's a thing that, or like going onto a project where you've already decided. It's like having that open, curious mind can just like really expand things. And in a way, it's like almost folds in on itself. So I feel like that's part of what psychedelics create, isn't it? That new way of thinking is a kind of open mind. And I think one of the things that, that strikes me about what you were talking about with the problem solving and the new ways of thinking and particularly when you're describing like you would have an insight that would solve like 20 different problems at once I think it's like yeah psychedelics can be a door into this more like distributed mm. way of experiencing things and particularly around things like software or like systems and things like that I can see that the two would would work super well together. Yeah, and I was also like a lot of the insights were unifying different threads in my research. So I was mm. interested in some purely philosophical stuff. I was, I was quite interested in Socrates at the time. I've been doing some work with some psychologists on developing techniques to reduce the overconfidence bias that people have. So overconfidence is a tendency for us all to be more confident than we should be in our, in our judgments. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I ask you who's going to win the next election, if you're like most people, you'll, you'll have a guess and ask you to assign a probability. Your probability will be too high. And, and we all basically everyone has this bias. There's demographic variations. So men tend to be more overconfident than women. And um, mm -hmm. but it, it's pretty universal. So I was working on that. And, and then I was also doing the, the software stuff. And then I'd have an insight that would like just kind of cut across all three domains. And I was like, oh, these, all these things are unified. And what happened strangely through focusing on music, that was something mm. I still need to kind of think more about. It wouldn't work like this. I couldn't sit down and say, eat some magic truffles or psilocybin truffles that are legal here in Amsterdam. I couldn't just sit down and eat them and then start thinking about my work. It wouldn't, that wouldn't work. It would just be a mess. Mm -hmm. But what would work was that if I was like just listening to music and really focus on enjoying music mm -hmm. suddenly my mind like kind of in parallel would be working on lots of different ideas all at once this is kind of what you were saying before like it, it sort of opens up and creates a kind of branching or like parallel effect in the mind and so long as i was stayed focused on the music my mind would be working on these problems and then it would come up with these great ideas and then like an idea would pop up and then i'd write it down and as soon as I'd write it down, the experience would get very uh, confusing and, and chaotic because I was no longer paying attention to the music. I was focused on trying to get the idea down. So a lot of these uh, moments became like a frantic race. Right. To yeah. kind of quickly type it out in the middle of this chaos that suddenly like exploded and, and go back to focusing on the music. Yeah, that makes total sense. So I do. We've, we did a little bit of this together in the group setting the, the journey with music but I use music a lot in my like I, I reference it a lot when I talk about dharma and the internet connected nature of reality and if I do like some very intense one-to-one -one journeying with people I always say like let, make some time to listen to music afterwards 
And I think it's because it's really the doorway into that more soulful kind of realm, like intuitive realm, which is, yeah, the part that your mind can't keep up with or follow necessarily, but that your body and your intuition can make sense of and connect with and just flow with. And it's almost like rather than your mind sort of keeps you on a time frame where it does almost like it's almost like a train that's going along where it's like one thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. Whereas I think your intuition is more like a flock of starlings where it's all just sort of moving and going in lots of different directions at once. And it's like the music allows your intuition to just dance with it and flow. Yeah, it's a nice, that's a nice way of putting it. It's, it, yeah, it captures the experience. And it, it's interesting when you look at the qualitative research that's coming out of from the therapeutic application of psychedelics. So a lot of that research, they have lots of descriptions from the patients who have, have gone through the process. And music is always a key theme. And some of them even describe the experiences as it was, it's the music that's doing the work and not the drug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So they feel this quite strongly. So it's, it's almost like the, the, the substance is kind of creating the space that then allows the music to do the therapeutic change, which I find quite fascinating, right? Because it's quite natural to think, oh, it's the substance doing it. But I, I've had the experiences like this as well. Sometimes it feels like it's actually the music that's the process. You know, the drug is just like the door that opens, opens you up to that world. That... that makes total intuitive sense to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really rings true. Because I think, yeah, one of, one of the things is that I often, I, I spend a lot of my time just feeling like I'm on psychedelics a lot of the time and I end up I basically listen to music constantly yeah I just like need it in a way to just kind of flow with life a bit and it makes a lot more sense yeah I'm always listening to music and I I often need to find like one song or one album and play it on repeat oh yeah I'm doing a particular thing like if I'm writing a paper but a lot of my papers have soundtracks Mm, nice yep a lot of chapters in my book they have soundtracks because I was like I created a playlist for that particular set of ideas and I just play it on loop forever and it yeah it gets you kind of into a trance or a groove that yeah allows you to focus in a way that it's hard to do otherwise yeah totally yeah yeah that's really relatable that's cool nice and then another thing that that it brings up is i always feel like to me psychedelics feels like it's taking filters off rather than like putting an experience on it's it feels like it's yeah just like taking the filters off so that kind of doesn't feel like it's doing work on me it's more just Mm -hmm. like opening the doors and then what needs to happen can happen because the doors are open yeah, I find that there's certainly, it feels like taking the filters off, like definitely. And sometimes I also feel like it's just a matter of, it's just changing the filters. Mm. So you get, you're getting a completely different perspective, which is its own new kind of filter. And then that's very valuable because you spend the next four or five hours, you know, looking at the world from a completely different perspective. Yes. It's kind of like, you know, this, the duck rabbit image. Oh yeah. 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 So it's like you're going around seeing just, you know, the duck every, all the time. And then all of a sudden you start seeing the rabbit for five hours and you go, oh, there's a, there's a way of looking at the world such that there's a rabbit here. Mm-hmm. So always a duck. Yeah. That's nice. Nice description. And then, yeah. But is there, is there any like particular important things that came out from writing the book that feel most important or is it, was it more kind of like the whole process of creating it and... Yeah, there's. I mean, there's, there's so much. I think mm-hmm. so. I think for for anyone writing a book, it it itself is a transformative process. And then especially when a book, when you're like very invested in a book, like it has this kind of personal connection to you, and it's it's kind of aligned with your your own kind of growth and transformation. 
it is itself a thing that completely changes you. I mean, there's a few big ideas of, that came out for me while I was writing the book. One big one, which a, a friend helped me see, it was kind of in my mind for a while, but my friend really helped kind of show me that this is what I was trying to say, is it relates to the concept of psychedelic experience. So something I argue for in the book is that this concept is broader than we normally think of it. So we, when people talk about psychedelic experience, their mind naturally gravitates towards psychedelics and thinking, oh, those psychedelic experiences are the experiences uh, you have when you take psychedelic drugs. But the term psychedelic was deliberately created by a psychiatrist. His name was Humphrey Osmond in 1957. And he introduced the term specifically for the reason that he wanted something that didn't have any prior associations. He wanted a new term. It was a technical like term of art that was going to be designed to capture what these experiences are like that hadn't been yeah, contaminated by culture or, or, or anything like that. So at, like, at the time, these, these substances had other names, like, hallucin- like they were called hallucinogens or psychotomimetics. So calling them hallucinogens signifies that their primary effect is to create hallucinations or calling them psychotomatics was to say that their primary effect was to create states of psychosis. Mm. So he really didn't like these two terms. He thought they weren't getting at the the kind of essential feature of these experiences. So although they do, psychedelics often do cause hallucinations, it's not really what makes them so special. And then um, they do, these states do have some resemblance to stages of psychosis, particularly early stages of psychosis, but there are some differences as well. And even if they weren't there, it's still not the real kind of defining feature. So the idea was to introduce this term, a new term that would capture the defining feature. So they came up with this term psychedelic out of the two Greek words psyche and delos. So psyche has a couple of translations, but the typical one is mind, right? So when we talk about psychology, it's the study of the mind. And delos is this Greek word that meant to reveal or to manifest or to make visible, to see clearly. And so putting them together, one kind of appropriate translation is psychedelic means mind revealing or mind manifesting. So when you understand it that way, you can see that this notion of a psychedelic experience, it isn't necessarily tied to the drugs. There's nothing in that definition is about like consuming a, a drug. Just as like the idea of a calling them hallucinogens is not tied to the drugs, right? So if I say these things are hallucinogens, you know immediately what I mean, even if you hadn't had any experience with the drugs, because you have this idea of, you know what it means to have a hallucination. Maybe you haven't experienced one yourself, but you know what it means to have a hallucination. And it's entirely possible to have an hallucination without having consumed these drugs, right? So the concept is independent from the, the drugs. And so the same thing is true of psychedelic, right? So the reason why the name stuck is because it's a pretty good idea, like it's a pretty good hypothesis that this is what these drugs do, that they do reveal the mind. They call the, cause these mind revealing experiences. But for some reason, we've kind of forgotten that there's a broader concept here. Like we could have mind revealing experiences by other means. And so in the book, I spent a lot of time exploring the idea that one other way to have these experiences is through uh, the practice of meditation. Mm, Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think that really helps kind of make it clear that there's a, there's a broader concept here and there might be different kinds of psychedelic experiences you can have through different means and taking psychedelics is just one way to have these experiences. Yeah, totally. And I, I think it's nice as well, the distinction between like hallucinogens and psychedelics because it's like, I think when I was a teenager, I took a bunch of psychedelics. I was just expecting to see a bunch of visuals and actually, yeah, like now, obviously it's just a much more strong sense of this sort of embodied, heartful, open, connected, ineffable experience, which almost can't be imagined until it's experienced in a way. And I think distinguishing between those those two is nice. Yeah, and I'm noticing now that I get this a lot when I talk to people who've done a lot of psychedelics. My experience gets very psychedelic very quickly. And this is oh, happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is happening now. So it's quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I have, I've had a few friends say this to me as well. That, uh, you know, no substances involved, just hanging out, things get psychedelic pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I think so, actually, just to that point, so one, one kind of psychedelic experience you can have without, well, no, no matter what, like even through meditation, through psychedelics, or even just doing nothing, is uh, having a, a, like a memory triggered. So a lot of our memories are not easily accessible. And sometimes they suddenly flood into our conscious experience right and so this i think this is a, a one one way in which our minds can be revealed there's a memory that's like hidden or hard to access and then it, yeah suddenly shown to you and i think what's going on is when you're hanging out with other people who've had a lot of these experiences whether or not through through drugs or meditation or, or or just through um like introspection and philosophy the way they speak the way they carry themselves the like particular order of ideas that they that they go through it like creates this resonance in you and then it kind of like it can trigger these experiences it's just bringing these memories up into into your awareness again so it entirely makes sense that talking to these people with this kind of mindset can can trigger yeah psychedelic states yeah totally and i i think from my work and my my experience what i've been through it's almost like rewiring your kind of intuition and your energy body and like yeah just how you're structured in a way that is away from that kind of train of this thing this thing this thing into this more sort of like distributed open thing and i i think when we're in like relationship and in conversation we, we kind of adapt to other people's things whereas when you get two people who have got that more like symbiotic distributed way of being it's like you can just relax into it yeah i think ha having these experiences and like doing these practices meditation but also like the imaginal practices that uh that you that you've shown me actually i didn't know about them until until talking to you a lot of these uh practices are teaching you how to have a phenomenologically transparent experience so what that means is um, our experience can vary in terms of how opaque or transparent it is. When it's more transparent, it feels like you're more in the world and you're having a direct experience of everything. And when it's more opaque, you have a more kind of distant relationship to the world. And it's more the kind of representational aspect of the mind is more apparent. I just came across a funny example of this uh, earlier today of another group I was talking to. So I'm told that one difference between Protestants and Catholics is how they understand the drinking wine and the the, the wafer. Right? So Protestants see it as see, see these things as representing the flesh and blood of Christ, and Catholics see it as as the flesh and blood of Christ. So it really is like in that moment the flesh and blood of Christ. So on this idea that I'm trying to express the the opacity and transparency, the Protestants have this kind of representational approach to it. Right? They're saying it's it's a representation of the flesh and blood. So there's a kind of distance. It's not literally flesh and blood. But the Catholics see it as actually that. And so this is a more transparent mode of experience. That's super interesting. So it's almost like the difference between metaphor and simile. Yeah, yes. And so a lot of these practices, and I think a big feature of psychedelics is that they, your, your experience is usually fixed at a certain level of opacity and transparency, and it can kind of disrupt that. So you, you can be more opaque. So a lot of Vipassana practices are about increasing uh, opacity. But a lot of practices, I think imaginal practices are very clearly this, is it increases in transparency yes. psychedelics is also causes increases in transparency and i think this is what flow states are as well so when when you're in a flow state there's no kind of barrier between you and what you're doing you're one with the thing that you're doing right and i think this is what happens when people who are familiar with these experiences when they start talking to each other they enter a mutual flow state because mm -hmm. they're both they've been kind of cultivating this ability to increase the phenomenal transparency of their experience so you can get a stronger connection you get that kind of tighter feedback loops and yeah you enter into these mutual flow states yeah, this is great. This is super interesting. Yeah, I've talked about this with, with meditation teaching as well, with, with the, the 
mood and detail I've called it before with the transparency being mood and the opacity being detail it's almost like the world can be a fundamentally different place depending which lens you put on as the primary lens so if you're like the transparent kind of embodied like really in it lens metaphorical mood it's very different to the other opaque kind of detail simile lens and I think that can I think that that fundamental difference when it's not explicitly recognized and said like oh these are two different ways of experiencing and looking at the world it causes all sorts of misunderstandings and yeah in like our meditation is taught or like psychedelic experiences are talked about all those sorts of things it's like someone is describing something in a metaphorical way and someone else is understanding it in a more of a simile way or whatever and it's just like they can't communicate so I really like this I can see that it helped people understand different parts of experience better and communicate about them better yeah and particularly also when it comes to uh, a lot of mental health uh, issues so 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 far we've been talking about transparency as a as a as a good thing like entering a mutual flow state is is a good thing but like depression some forms of depression involve a highly transparent mode of being but you kind of in, the, in a sense, you've gone down the wrong track. Like you're you're stuck in this kind of state of feeling everything's real, but it's a bad reality, right? You've got the wrong kind of lenses on. You're looking through the wrong lenses. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's one reason why meditative practices can be useful for helping with these conditions is, and psychedelics as well, is that they can teach you to kind of take a representational step back and, and seeing that there's a kind of optionality to the way you look at the world. And then you then you can you can change it. Yes, that makes total sense. Yeah, it's almost like you want to increase the range that you have and like dance between the two and be able to step back and see something. But this is one of the things I love about the imaginal practice, actually, because in a way it does both. You can kind of step back and be like, oh, this thing that I was sort of in, I can now look at and say, you know, rather than it being just like sadness that I'm like, whoa, stuck in. It's like, oh, it's sadness that I can look at and give it a image and whatever and then you can kind of get back in it and you're kind of dancing with both aspects of that in a way yeah exactly you don't have to react to it you don't have to get sucked into it but you Mm -hmm. can go into it if you if you choose to i mean there's a common theme in all these practices and discussions is about like freedom and and having a choice about your, your mental state you don't have to be stuck in a particular way yeah nice and then it almost feels like psychedelics to me it's almost like taking you really deep into a kind of deep under layer of reality and and kind of taking you into a flow state with it is that would you describe it like that or do you describe it differently i think it can do that so the, the tricky thing with psychedelics is i think they do so many different things mm. so even if you have the like the same person at the same time of day with the same substance the same amount on two different days they can have radically different that one person can have radically different experiences. So it's really hard to say simple unifying things about the, the effects of psychedelics. That makes sense. So one idea in my book, which I find quite appealing, is I think maybe one simple thing that we can say about them is that they disrupt our attentional systems. And that disruption can then, it can go in different ways, right? Like just as like, if you've got a coin balanced on its edge and you tip the coin over, it could go heads or it could go tails, you know, different outcomes but the same mechanism of, of disruption and so was meditation a lot of med- meditative practices are basically a training of the attentional system right learning how to focus attention or move attention around or to diffuse attention so I, I think that's what's going on with with psychedelics and so that 
disruption of attention could result in a very kind of chaotic state. So if you, some of the descriptions of these experiences look a lot like the descriptions of people struggling with uh, ADHD, where you can, uh, get, you can get stuck focused on something for a really long time and it's hard to disengage, or your mind is constantly moving from one thing to another, right? It can't settle on anything. So certainly I think psychedelics can cause those kinds of experiences. On the other hand, if your attention is too kind of rigid and stuck on a, like the same kinds of ideas, like it might be um, self-hatred or like negative mental chatter, and you're kind of playing that tape again and again and again, by disrupting that attentional system, the flow of attention, it can knock you out of that pattern and, and give you the space to enter a, enter a better pattern. And so that attentional resource that was usually consumed by these these negative thoughts could then do anything. Like it could then flow into your like onto your memories and start causing you to like relive old memories from your childhood, or it could flow into your visual field, and so you get this really strong visual effects. And so everything starts uh, appearing more saturated, brighter, higher contrast. Start getting uh, hallucinations. So it really, I think this is a useful way of thinking. It kind of because it explains the variety of psychedelic experiences. Like the mind is this big, complex space, if you want to put it like that. And the attentional resource could go anywhere. It could go into memories. It could go into, like maybe you've got some latent desires that are not quite strong enough or being crowded out by all the thoughts right now that you're not aware of them. And suddenly that gets amplified. Or like sound. So your, your, your perception of sound could be amplified because of this new attentional resource. And so music sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. Or it goes into the body. Like, there's so many examples, but yeah, you see the idea that that disruption it could go in. It's like bursting a dam, and the water could flow anywhere. It really depends on on the geography that it's flowing into. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's that's super nice. And I, I've actually used the bursting the dam metaphor for the management practice oh, as nice. well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, feels really resonant. Yeah, there's something that um, feels important in the heart opening aspect of it as well. Mm. I think generally it tends to bring about more heartfulness, doesn't it? And open-heartedness. And mostly that's pretty good for people occasionally. I think I've certainly had a bad trip when I was younger where I opened my heart and got hit with a bunch of stuff I wasn't ready for. But it feels like an important part of it. Yeah, I think so. And actually, I had this nice conversation with uh, Yost about this. He had this kind of advice for navigating psychedelic experiences. So when they get difficult, the solution can often be more heartfulness. So kind of remember that and try to open up that space and approach whatever that's coming up, like a fear or, or, or whatever, with heartfulness. And then it can kind of like open it up even more, but also reduce the turmoil or the, the unpleasantness of the experience and cre- creates more space so you can have insight and, and process whatever it is that's going on. And then I think also that these substances are good for revealing that as well. Like I think it's hard for a lot of people to have that notion of heartfulness. I mean, it, it, it sounds woo-woo in a way, right? Like if you're coming from very skeptical, right? It's like, is it my heart? You, this thing that pumps blood has what? Like some energy or something? Or thinking about it in terms of the heart space, which is not necessarily the heart, it's like in the, in the chest area. And, and really, it's like kind of moving your attention to that space and trying to orient yourself towards the world through that focus of attention rather than having attention up here in the head as we often, as we often have it. That creates a different way of perceiving the world and, and, and engaging with the world. And that's, I don't think there's anything uh, woo-woo about that at all. It's a, it's a completely legitimate and, and very useful perspective to be able to enter into. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's important, isn't it, that it's in language that people can connect to and, and understand. But yeah, it's definitely based in real experience. And there's something in the kind of loosening the mind's grip a bit on it, needing to understand and yeah, just being able to drop into that like heart space and, and be a bit more sort of like embodied, more relaxed, more open. 
Yeah, so on that, so when we were talking about psychedelic before, like it was re- it was really oriented towards the mind, being mind-revealing. But there's another interpretation of psyche, which is soul or, or spirit. And I, I feel like we might need to even broaden it even more than that, because like these experiences clearly get you more embodied. So there's there's some sense in which they're body revealing. You're, you're more in contact with your body. And in the, the heart and the soul, it, it's revealing in those respects as well. So either we kind of broaden our understanding of mind or the psyche, or we, we need to recognize that there's, there's more going on than just mind revelation. Yeah, totally. All the, those other parts are definitely opening up. And that's, I think, part of that, like rewiring into a more distributed way of being where it's different parts of our system kind of working together and communicating together. And I wondered as well, with like talking about this stuff, part of what helps is this kind of like open curiosity. So rather than getting into sort of like, you know, woo territory where you're saying to people like, oh, it has, you know, it's, it's this thing or it's this thing, it's kind of like encouraging people to experiencing it for themselves and I think this sort of respect and connection and interest in the ineffable really helps with this and I know that you're interested in ineffability yeah let's let's dive into ineffability but just on that last point it's something I, I was quite deliberate in, in how I wrote the book that it was it was kind of it's geared towards people who are like my former self who are very kind of scientifically minded very kind of um kind of strong bullshit detector maybe maybe too strong but like that, that kind of mindset. And what I really wanted to do was um, kind of go step by step and just show, look, in very safe territory, like, hey, there's nothing strange going on here. Like there's concepts, we can understand what concepts are like. We've got these ideas that are well studied, you know, in science, like so memory and attention and perception, all this sort of stuff. There's, there's increasingly good science on that. We can, we can talk about that in purely sensible terms. And as you go along that journey, it builds up more and more to this point that there's, there's more of your mind than your typically aware and, and if you want to put it as there's, there's stuff that even goes beyond the mind it's not like religion or anything where you have to kind of have faith and trust that's going to be there you, you can check a lot of this stuff out for yourself right like so meditative practice it's almost cost free right you can just sit down and pay attention to your breath for five minutes and, and a lot of people experience benefits right away you, can, you notice that something changed for the good and, and it's also scientifically measurable too so you don't have to kind of um, tell people really what these extreme states involve you can just go like hey like the stuff here like depression is bad and like from what we can tell it involves this certain kind of like rigid thought patterns it's a good idea to loosen them up right and yeah 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 and then you just and then like you allow people to explore this space on their own terms and arrive at their own conclusions and i think i think that's like a good way of approaching all of these mm, topics and yeah sometimes it goes the other way i think sometimes people from their own personal experiences have a de- very definitive idea of like what all this is leading to and 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 yeah they're kind of uh trying to guide people towards that where i think it's it's better to allow people to explore on their own terms and find out for themselves yeah i couldn't agree more it's like a fine line where you're sort of opening doors for people and saying like oh this could potentially happen because if they have never heard it then they might not allow themselves to go there but you're not sort of like saying this is where it's going or pushing people in a direction or just sort of like yeah subtly kind of creating a bit more space opening up possibilities 
Yeah. So then to touch on ineffabilities, I think this is one of the virtues of ineffability is because it creates that that space. But to back up a little bit, so the, the reason why I got into got interested in ineffability was that I was trying to think about these really what you might call like extreme psychedelic states, which are often being called as as mystical experiences. And I was trying to think about what they were. And remember, my background question was, what is psychedelic experience? It's this idea that uh, it's a mind-revealing experience. And so I had this question, are these mystical experiences mind-revealing experiences? Like, are they psychedelic? Or are they like huge disruptions to the mind? And so they're actually, they're nothing interesting at all. They're just the brain being kind of overwhelmed with uh, chaos and, and the breaking down of its usual functioning, which is kind of like, you know, how you reset your computer. Mm-hmm. The period where it's off is not necessarily a good thing. It's the whole reset process. It's the good thing. Right? And so that, that's a possibility that these mystical experiences, there's nothing special about them. They're just a, the transition period while the uh, system resets itself. So I had questions like this. I was trying to understand what they were and what properties they have. And of course, the big problem is that like many mystics from all the different traditions, one of the most common things they say about these experiences is that they're ineffable. Mm-hmm. so they're indescribable what they're not saying is that um it's difficult to describe or the experience is so overwhelming that they're at a loss for words they're saying something stronger than that they're saying something along the lines of to attempt to describe it would be to distort it so much that i'd be giving you more misinformation than information about what the experience is like and so there's this kind of intrinsic ineffability that's kind of the, the core of the experience and that creates all sorts of problems because if you say it's ineffable then you've said something about it you've described it (laughs) you said it's indescribable that's a description so you immediately get into all these these paradoxes and again for the people who have my kind of mindset it's very skeptical and very logical mathematical this just seems like nonsense it just seems like word games right it's just like oh you said it's indescribable that's a description i look at you you're clever you you've got a paradox and now you're kind of like reveling in that paradox and i think that's a mistake i think the trick is to kind of like allow our minds to to kind of accept this idea of ineffability to be able to kind of hold it in our minds without it immediately collapsing into into paradox and i think by doing that that's one way of developing an understanding of these experiences yeah i really like that yeah totally can become just another clever mind game and i think one of the ways in which i relate to ineffability is i describe it as what's ineffable can't be understood it can only be expressed yeah, it's almost like the discovery of the Mandelbrot set, the fractals, mm-hmm. the equation that can make infinite fractals. It's like a thing that's in creation. It's never a thing that is like um, something that your mind just sort of gets and then is fixed and is kind of concretized. It's like, to me, like this conversation is an expression of the cosmic ineffability of life and life force and all of these things it's like we're not going to land on a thing where we say oh yeah this is what uh this is what psychedelics are this is what the inevitable is this is what um whatever is but it's like the process of the expression can take you closer and create understanding and create connection and meaning and all of these things it's not that understanding can't be created but it's that you never land on a final thing that is like it's this yeah it's it's interesting you mentioned the example of the equations the Mandelbrot equations ca- capturing this, how would I say, like infinitely dense set, let's say. Because one one of my favorite descriptions of a mystical experience is by Arthur, uh, I don't know how to say his name actually, Kosler or Kaysler. And um, you can look it up on the internet. He calls it the hours by the window. And uh, he was in some prison during World War II. And he was just stuck in this, in this cell with nothing to do. And he was just scratching around the, on the wall, just trying to kind of entertain himself. And he started doing some some mathematics and he started remembering how much he enjoyed mathematics as a child. And 
he was going through Euler's proof that there's an infinite number of prime numbers. And this triggered a mystical experience for him. It's a really, really beautiful description. I highly recommend people reading it because it's, it's very, it's a very long, very detailed and very, very poetic. But basically what, what triggered it was that he saw that in a, in a finite expression, this thing that he was able to scratch on the wall, it, it captured something that was, that was infinite and like, like in a way impossible for a human, because the mind is finite as far as we can tell. The brain is finite at the very least. How did the brain kind of grapple with this infinity and compress it down into a finite expression? And so he was just so enamored by this achievement that it triggered this mystical experience that he had in a, in a prison cell. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. And it's like, again, it's like the, the paradox of the finite creates the infinite and, and the other way around and, and that relationship between the two. And I think there's something in what you were saying before about the pa- like the paradoxes. And I think there's a way with this stuff where people are a bit woo People are a bit woo, and in in that case, it's like they forget their brain. It's almost like going more towards that sort of like embodied heartfulness, and it's like you really need that. That's kind of like part of what needs to happen. That kind of like connected, less logical, more emotional, more just like open to any experience kind of thing. But it's like that's not it. Then you need to sort of like get your mind on board as well. Bring that along. In- include the kind of logical thinking. Yeah, like this guy doing maths equations or however it is that your brain kind of engages with the world naturally I think people have very different ways of making sense of reality and understanding it and they're all interesting and valid and then some people kind of get a bit stuck there and go like oh yeah it's it's just a paradox it's a paradox kind of like get some clever idea that they sort of stick on but then it's like then you keep going and then if you really push through to like the limits of your understanding and the limits of like your wonder at the world and and then you kind of breakthrough to the to the sort of mystical ineffable aspects of experience yeah i completely agree there's, there's something about like we, we we need both kinds of yeah i don't know what to call it like cognition or, or styles of thinking or approaching the world it's a very rational logical one on the one hand side and then this more um yeah mystical or heartfelt or uh, open and uh it's almost like they keep each other in check mm-hmm. and like we're all forgetful so the i think the problem is if we lean too heavily on on one side we start forgetting ideas or insights that we've previously had, and then we start making the mistakes that we've that we know in a, in a sense are, are wrong. Like we start becoming more dogmatic about what it is. So if you're on the more logical, rational side, it becomes oh, these are just paradoxes, and we need to kind of you know create fancy logics to 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 manage them. Or if you're on the more yeah heartfelt, mystical side, then you know it becomes the sort of thing that's given mysticism a bad reputation over the years. And and also as another form of dogmatism as well, like you start getting ideas about what what this is, like okay, this involves seeing that there is no self, mm-hmm. or it involves seeing that there is a universal self that you are, involves seeing that you are God, or seeing that everything is one, or plug in the view that you're most sympathetic to. Yeah, and I think certainly for myself, but I think for a lot of people that I spend a lot of time talking to, ineffability is a useful tool to helping to kind of balance those two mindsets. Because it's like it's kind of on its face, it's like there's a problem here. Because if you're saying it's ineffable, then that's suggesting that it's anti-scientific in a sense, right? It can't be described, and so it can't be theorized or or studied about. And then I think also with it prevents you from going on onto the dogmatism side as well. So you, if you find yourself saying that it's um it's the experience of oneness, well you you've now said something about it, or or even like in just saying that it's ineffable. You go, ah, oh, I've said something about it. So I, I often do this a lot. 
so the I really like saying that these experiences are ineffable. I think it's a really useful way of, of kind of getting a conversation going. But I, I also want to back away from ineffability as well. It, it kind of suggests that these experiences are very mysterious and hard to kind of grapple with. But in a way, they're actually very simple and they're like the most kind of, there's essentially what's the most obvious thing that's sitting right in front of your nose right now, you know? And so ineffability kind of creates this blockage that's unnecessary. So... I often regularly make sure I like back away from the ineffability thing as well and regularly make sure I try to say some things about explicit things about mystical experience. But then of course I immediately, like after having said them, I take them back as well. And I find this is this, this kind of dynamic process helps keep things fresh because you're, you're constantly moving and never, you're never really getting stuck on any, on any one idea. Yes. And something you were just saying as well. I, I, I really like what you said about that, not just calling it ineffable because I think there's yeah. lots of things like, endless things like quantum physics yeah the Mandelbrot set like crazy maths really amazing sort of poetic descriptions of mystical experiences like all sorts of stuff that does capture it and does express it in a, in a way and it's not a kind of final answer but there's certainly lots of ways in which it can be described that are true and effective and interesting and, and helpful for people and, and increase people's understanding so it's nice to recognize that just because it, in one way it's ineffable, that does that's also not like a fixed definition either. Yeah, I completely agree. So the thing that I get worried about a lot is that um, it's just so easy to forget when we start going down a line of describing it as, say, um, uh, experiencing the unity of everything um, and, and exploring that and unpacking it and trying to make sense what that means and connecting it up to other kind of features of these experiences. So, for example, the People often describe these experiences as being timeless. So what's the what's the relationship between unity and timelessness? I think there's some interesting things to say there and worth saying. But as you start going down that rabbit hole, it's just so amazingly easy to forget that this is just one perspective that's useful, but we need to be able to, to, to relinquish it at a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. But if you start writing about it, you start like you create a blog, you start writing philosophy articles on it, and then it suddenly becomes a view that you're starting defending and... And then now, it, you know, it morphs into something that it, it wasn't meant to be in the first place. Yeah. So we kind of constantly got to have this practice of, let's go down that rabbit hole, but let's make sure that we come back out. Yeah, a nice description. I feel like there's a little bit of sort of kind of playful trickster energy that's inherently in it. That is like, oh, it's this thing. Oh, no, it isn't. Oh, it's this thing. No, it isn't. Kind of like, and that sort of um, like slightly like playful fun attitude makes it. Yeah, it makes it more of a engaging experience rather than like a stressful, like, oh, I need to figure this out kind of thing. It's more like exploring. So I'm not a, uh, by no means an expert on philosophy of religion, but I feel like there must be, someone must have had this idea already that this kind of playfulness is a variant of the via negativa uh, approach of trying to describe these experiences or trying to describe God. So via negativa is, um, we're not going to try and say positively about what God is. We're going to just say what he's not mm-hmm. or what, what God is not, right? I think that that's the kind of what you might call like classic via negativa. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a variant of it, which is you're not just saying negative things about it. You're saying positive things, but then immediately saying negative things about the positive things that you just said. So you give as there's this nice paper by Douglas Schrader in 2008. He puts it as whatever you give, you, you give a description in one hand, but then you take it back with the other. And I feel like someone I, I just don't know this literature very well, but it must there must be this. Someone must have come up with this methodology already that this kind of playfulness. I'm going to say what it is, but I'm going to immediately take it back because what I said is wrong. 
but it was still useful to say because it gave you a glimpse or like a sense, like a, it gave you a bit of the vibe. But don't hang on to that. There's definitely aspects of, of that, isn't there, in like Zen and, and some other bits, but it's a bit serious. And I, this is one yeah. of the things that I talk about, which I've never, equally never come across. And it's one of my core kind of teaching things. Is It's an aspect of like dark joy. It's kind of joy in not knowing joy and sort of like a way where you're Mm. sort of taking the piss out of yourself a bit taking the piss out of the world a bit like (laughs) just kind of laughing at it all and um yeah it's very rarely found in religion and I think it's partially because it has a dark aspect Mm. to it you have to sort of be able to sit in your kind of slightly kind of devil devilish energy which most religions typically turn away from don't they but yeah I fully embrace this the best teacher i think yeah i think that's a, like a lot of a lot of religions are a lot of what they're about is reducing uncertainty mm, right and then there's various reasons or pathways for doing that like there's a population of people who are, don't yet have a scientific mindset struggling with uncertainty there's all sorts of weird things going on in the world there are diseases you know back before we knew what diseases were like what, what's happening what's causing all this freak weather events you know and what happens after death that's the ultimate uncertainty mm-hmm so a lot of religion is about managing uncertainty and, and trying to re- reduce it. So it's really in the game of, of that. But yeah, in this, in these, especially with Zen, a bit other kind of what you might call it. I never feel right calling them mystical tra- traditions, but I think you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. There's this playfulness and this is sort of like, they're fucking with you. Like it's clearly like the Zen masters are fucking with their students sometimes. And it's, it's to break open the student's mind and allow them to accept or tolerate uncertainty and kind of be okay with this just sort of bizarreness of the situation that we find ourselves in yeah that's nice and then i thought this kind of leads on quite nicely to maybe this could be a a final thing to talk about and i think we could talk about this for ages but we'll just touch on it it's the idea of design in all of this design of experience or design of spaces to facilitate this kind of well i guess just as as a concept but potentially to sort of facilitate more I guess openings for people or do you want to talk about what your interest is? Yeah, so um, this is another passion of mine. Uh, I've had it for as long as I've known is um, I'm really interested in design. Yeah, for the longest time I didn't understand why, I've just been drawn to it. And a lot of my work involves design, so we do a lot of software development and involves a lot of designing web interfaces. And not just for the sake of trying to do like conversions or getting sales, but design for the purpose of helping people think better. So we're helping people make big decisions where billions of dollars are at stake or even human lives are at stake. And they're managing, there's data and there's subjective expert opinions and that all has to be kind of compiled together to make a decision. And so I work a lot on making the interface for that process to be as conducive for good decision making. So it's not just making things pretty, it's about helping people manifest the better versions of themselves so they can make the best possible decisions. And so a lot of design is about attention. So just take the like the simple case of where you're designing a, a web page to, you're selling something, you've got some product you wanna sell. What you're trying to do is you're trying to grab people's attention and then you're trying to direct it towards some kind of action where they're gonna click on the button, the buy now button. So this is about, it's about attention. And you see this time and time again, well-designed websites are good at guiding people's attention to the to the action that you want them to perform. And on the negative end of this, you have a lot of uh, like social media websites that are really good at grabbing people's attention, but for the purpose of keeping them on the platform and then exposing them to ads and monetizing their, their attention. So design is about attention and it can be kind of directed in a negative way or, or a positive way. And so the, this connects up with meditation psychedelics because they're all, I think they're also about attention. So meditation is clearly about training of attention. I think, as I said before, psychedelics about like freeing up or disrupting attention. And I've 
in the book, I was exploring a lot this connection between meditation and psychedelics. I think basically the synergy there is a lot of our attention is kind of bottled up in ways it's it's hard to kind of unlock. And psychedelics are really good at unlocking it. And then meditation is really good at managing attention. The little that we have or the, the new attention that's freed up by psychedelics. And I think it, design is another way of managing attention. If you're looking at a, a web page or you're sitting in your room, like your, your bedroom or your office or whatever, there are things that are going to grab your attention, right? The, the bright things or the shiny things or the colorful things or the ugly things or the, the bill that you've got stuck against the wall. Or, these things grab your attention and then they send you down particular pathways of thinking, right? You see the bill and you start worrying about your finances and you start thinking, oh, I've got to do this. And now you're no longer you know, you, your original intention was to sit down to meditate, for example, right? Stuff like that happens all the time. And so I think there's this, this idea that I've been playing around with is what I call psychedelic design. I'm not sure if that's the best name for it, but the idea of designing our environments and our online experiences so that they kind of direct attention in the way that we want it to, right? So kind of see behind me my office here, but the bit that you can't see is that there's a Buddha statue here and you know, it's nice wood and the lighting's all right because I, I designed it to like help like focus my concentration on, on my writing. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the lit up Buddha statue is a nice reminder. It's, it's lit up so it catches my attention because our, our eyes are naturally drawn to high contrast or illuminated things. And so every now and then like it just it grabs my attention and it's like, oh, that's a nice reminder, you know, to practice mindfulness and in what I'm doing. And so this is something that I'm working on a lot at the moment is, yeah, figuring out how to take a lot of these insights that you can get through meditation and psychedelics and implement them in design so that other people who are not practicing meditation or not willing to take psychedelics or are living in a country or ju- jurisdiction that doesn't allow them to take psychedelics, they can still get a lot of the benefits. Mm-hmm from these alternative ways of thinking because it's been encoded in design. You know, there's a psychology of, of design and you've created something, an object or an interface that's going to help people direct the attention that they have to the things that are going to be good for them, that will help them self-manifest. Yeah, this is super nice. And it's, it's interesting because this is, I primarily identify as a designer, like whatever job I'm doing, mm. I, I suppose maybe the closest job that was what it was it's like a user experience designer when I did that that felt very clear but yeah even when I'm teaching meditation or doing whatever other various jobs I was doing it's always designing experiences sort of how I relate to the world how I interface with the world and yeah just things like I I pay very close attention to like the layout of a city I'm walking around and noticing whether it's like conducive to people being happy and like strolling around or whether it feels really sort of like designed for cars and yeah it can completely change humans sense of well-being and their whole experience can't it how things are designed so I'm super interested in that but yeah as you were just describing that I noticed that because I used to work in software as well and used to do wireframe design for software and I noticed that I think this is perhaps the opacity transparency detail mood thing again I think my design style is very much mood rather than detail. It's like details get swept in. I can kind of relate to what you're saying and see that that gets pulled into how I design things. But how it's driven is very mood focused. So it's sort of like, oh, what's the vibe that this needs to have? And when you were talking about designing to help people make better decisions, I think often my design is designing to help people feel better or have more clarity around feeling not just feel better necessarily in the sense of like 
I guess ideally like with the city you want to design it in a way that feels better for people but sometimes it's about having more clarity around feelings and that's just interesting to me those two very similar but different aspects and I think they go hand in hand so this is something I think about a lot so if you've got someone who's making a big decision where let's say like other people's lives are at stake and this happens all the time like a lot of public servants in governments around the world are making decisions just regular daily decisions that have huge impacts on people's lives and these public servants they're, they're trying to do like a lot of the time they're trying to do their best they really are trying to make good decisions but they're overwhelmed there's so many tasks that are screaming at them there's internal politics at the office and then for the particular problem that they're going to work on there's so much information so you see this sometimes when someone's making a, an interface to help the public servant with this problem. They think, ah, oh, okay, well, this person needs all the information. So they'll just dump all the information onto the onto the screen, right? So then you've got this situation where this person who's already overwhelmed, they're trying to do a good job, but they're completely overwhelmed. They're going in to like focus on this one thing. They've maybe got like 20 minutes to, to get this job done. And now there's this information overwhelm on the screen as well. And then now they're going to like focus and like try to figure out what makes sense. And they're going to like connect all the dots and, and whatever. And it's creating this mood of, of exhaustion mm-hmm. is one way of putting it right and to me it just seems very obvious that this is the wrong way to to do it so a lot of the design process the user experience research side is like talking to the real users and like trying to understand what do they need to make the decision what information do they want to see right away or how do they think about the problem and then you design the interface to fit how they're approaching the problem and so this often involves keeping a lot of the information away Yes. Right. And it's like step one, what's going on here? Maybe very simple stuff, like create some boundary conditions for the problem. Okay, we've done that. They can take a break, you know, and then maybe maybe even like a, a moment to meditate. So the interface could say like, okay, you've done this task. That's great progress. Take two minutes to meditate before you go on to the next thing, right? And so that it could be a much better way of using that 20 minutes to make the decision than going through and like trying to figure out all these numbers in an Excel sheet or whatever, and basically making an ad hoc decision because you're so fatigued at the end of the whole thing. And then part of that is also colors and and movement and fonts and all this sort of stuff and lots of details that the user was never aware of like proportions white space that sort of thing most users are never aware of that stuff but it does have a basically subliminal impact on them and so focusing on the details and, and thinking about the kind of overall mood that you're aiming for can make a huge difference in the decision that people are making yeah that makes total sense i really like that and i i think how it relates to more directly to yeah like psychedelics and meditation is super clear in the in the way of guiding a meditation or something it's like yeah the sort of things that you're including and the mood that you're evoking and it's all like that design and i think yeah the atmosphere like you were talking about with the music lots of people saying that it was the music that actually showed people on psychedelics the things or facilitated the transformation i think having more of an understanding of these things it could be amazing couldn't it really rich yeah absolutely and another point that we were talking about before was like telling people what's going to happen and or allowing them to explore it for themselves Mm. i think the same thing happens a lot with software design so often what happens in an organization someone fairly high up in management says we need to change things we need to bring in some software developers and designers and change how things are going but then what happens in the process is that fairly high level decision turns into a top-down mandate Mm. for a new way of doing things Mm -hmm. and so the people who are actually doing it they're getting told okay you now have to do things this way right and it's just like a lot of these projects often die because there's just too much pain there like it's just it's another it's another burden on the person doing the decision making and at least in my experience the successful projects are the ones that start bottom up so the the top-down decision is made yes we need a change but let's immediately find out the people who are actually doing this what what change do they want like what's right and in, and in the design and development process goes hand in hand with them so you don't just go away and make something and come back and like hey we've got a tool for you 
rather that you're building the tool with them. So you're going on this journey, very much like what happens in, in coaching or therapy or when you're teaching a student. You, you've got to go along with the person, right? It's on a journey. You build the thing together. And when you do that, you get a, like, so far, I've, I didn't think I've seen a single case where that fails. And, and like, you get a success. Yeah. And it's, again, this inviting people to come along and, and like, do it their way rather than mandating how they should do it. Yeah, yeah. So my background was all agile UX and project management. So that distributed, yeah, bottom up style. And yeah, I think one of the things that helps with it as well is that the people coming along the journey learn about it. Because I think one of the things is that doing these projects is, is hard. And like, rather than being a passive person who's being delivered a thing, and then at the end, they're dissatisfied with it, they're part of the journey of creating it. And so they feel a sense of connection and accountability with it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, you get that sense of uh, product ownership right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. This happens a lot that even if you've created a good thing, it's still something that they have to learn and evaluate and they don't have time and it's just easy to reject it rather than to yeah. figure out what the hell you've done. But if you have that sense of ownership right from the beginning, yeah, that's much much less likely you're going to have that reaction. And so I think th- like these seems like world of, worlds apart, right? Like software development, you know, ag- agile and, and UX research, that sort of thing, and mystical experiences, right? They seem like completely different things. But if you think about it, like the what we were talking about before, this sort of in, this insight of allowing people to approach it in, on their own terms, when you've experienced that or understood that in this very deep and grandiose way, it immediately applies to all sorts of other things that you're doing in your life. And, you know, UX and software development is one example, but I think it could apply to pretty much anything. Yes. And also, to me, there's a huge overlap in that the way to approach the sort of spirituality and the psychedelics and all of that has the same values as what we just discussed. It's like that bottom up way of working with people, taking people along the journey, kind of like facilitating them to discover what they really need and want and go on their own journey in that more sort of distributed way rather than a top down this is someone who has the answers or there's a god up there that has the answers or like having no self is the right way to do spirituality it's like rather than it being the top down the decision's been made and now you've got to try and get there it's like let's go on a journey where we're almost like allowing your own experience to emerge through the design of things like guided meditations or different styles of meditation or different psychedelics and listening to music where you have psychedelics like the deep yeah everything about it details the mood you're kind of designing your own world of spiritual openings or whatever however you want to call it and relate to it yeah yeah exactly and it's there's a kind of design in the methodology as well yeah, because how it's laid out will affect how people experience it as well. If yeah. you say like, you know, these are the stages of insight or whatever, then that will affect the process that people go through. Whereas if you say this is a shamanic ritual, it will affect the kind of experiences that right. people have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Well, thank you. It's been a super nice chat. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Wicked. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoyed. Aidan's book, Psychedelic Experience, is out later this year. And see you again soon. Bye.